morning we're going to be continuing a series that we've been doing in 1 Samuel. And um, in this passage that we're going to be looking at, which I don't see at the moment, but I'm praying is coming up here in just a moment. Um, we have in this passage, we've been going in 1 Samuel. If you want to look at it in your Bible, you will do, you can do so. I want to just do a couple minutes of review. It's hard when you're doing a series or a long time. It's easy to forget, you know, who's on first, what's on second, and who's on third kind of deal. Uh, so let's just do a little bit of review, and then we're going to be looking at our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. So just a little bit of review of what's been going on. We know that Saul has continued to have problems. David had to flee to the city of Nob, and that's where he got some help. He got some food for him and his men, and he got the sword that he killed uh, Goliath with, and so that was kind of a positive thing for him. But as you know, things went bad for David. He didn't know what to do, and so he acted like he was crazy. And the, the king he went to said, listen, we have enough crazy people in this house. We don't need you, and they threw him out. But at least it kept him alive. So David's kind of like down at the bottom of where he's at, I'm sure, emotionally and all that's going on. Saul, can, who is the king, continues, continues to try to get him and tries to kill him. Now, third thing is, notice if you would, what happens is David starts beginning to get his own military army. He's getting guys together. They're not always the cream of the crop. They're, uh, sometimes they're not particularly good guys. Uh, they're the guys who are in debt, the guys that are going to get out of jail. But what it is, he needed some guys to help him, so he has some men that are now working with him. Saul, as we remember, is getting weirder and stranger the further he goes. The further he gets away from God, the crazier he gets. And so what we see happen in this passage is as he is getting even weirder all the time. Remember what happens is he found out that David had gone to Nob and that they had given him some bread to eat, that Saul in his paranoia and in his craziness said, you know what, bring all the priests here from Nob, 85 of them, and they kill them all. They massacre them. One of them survives, Abiathar got away, but he kills them all and the rest of them. And so in that suffering and all the trouble that's going on, yet God is still at work through David. And as we're going to see in this passage that's coming up, Abiathar survived the purge, and he brought the ephod to David. And that was important. If you remember the ephod, they often they used the ephod. It, was like, it seemed to be like a robe that you wore, but also it could be used for saying yes or no. God, should we do this? And somehow the Lord would say yes or no. So it was important to him. So David has got these men, he's struggling, but he is trying to do what he can and to do what's right. And this is where we pick up our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'm using the Holman Christian Standard. If you're using something slightly different, it's no problem. They're very, very close to each other. But what we want to do is look at this passage together and get an idea of the heart of this man, of David, the man who's going to be king, who God had told them he's going to be king. But instead, he's hiding in caves and running around trying to stay alive. For David, this is an issue of can I trust God when I'm being chased, when they're trying to kill me, when he brings 3,000 men out to find me and kill me. Can I trust in this God? And so we pick up this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. It says, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he'd had to go fight the Philistines again, he was told, David is in the wilderness of near En Gedi. En Gedi, by the way, is a very interesting place. It's not far from where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're in a very desolate, mountainous area in southern Israel. It's a beautiful place. Um, I was there 
maybe 10 years ago, we were walking and doing a lot of hiking, thirsty. I was so sweaty. I thought I was so hot, incredibly hot out there in the desert. And then you started hearing the noise, the noise of water coming right out of the rocks. And that's what it looks like. You've got cold water rushing out of the limestone rocks. And let me tell you, we just ran. How fast could we get there to get right under that water? And it was just amazing. And it's a beautiful area. There are ibex still there today that go around that area. And it's because there's so much water. Here in the desert, water is pouring out underneath these rocks. And it's a beautiful area. So this is where this is taking place. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's choice men. In other words, the best that he had, we're going to get David and we're going to kill him. 3,000 of Israel's choice men. And we went, they went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. Okay, This goes back to the idea of the ibex and the other animals that were there. And so what happens, it says, when Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there. There's a number of caves in that area. Like we said, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in that area. And he said a cave was there, and he went into, I don't know which word you use, but to relieve himself, to go to the bathroom. In other words, he's a king. You don't want to go to the bathroom with all 3,000 guys looking at you. So he goes up into a cave to relieve himself, to do what you need to do. Okay? And so he's, trying to, he's going to go to the bathroom. And, of course, it says David and his men we're staying in the back of the cave. In other words, he doesn't know that there's like all kinds of guys in the back of this cave watching Saul go to the bathroom. Now, the big thing here about this is this is the best opportunity we're ever going to get to kill Saul. He doesn't know we're here. He's going to the bathroom. In Hebrew, it's, by, it's really called so it's cover your feet. It's a euphemism of saying going to the bathroom. And it's saying, that's okay. He's saying, he's saying what's it, what they're doing here is saying, do you realize what's happening? Here's Saul. Give me a, give, take a spear, run it right through him. You're king. It's as easy as that, David. And so David and his men were staying in the back of the cave. And they said to him, look, this was the guys talking to David. Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. Now, notice this. They're using the kind of a theological argument of saying here, God promised you that he's going to give you the kingship. This is it. God's working. He's going to the bathroom. He can't get away at this moment. He doesn't know what's happening. Take the spear. It's all over. You're king. Go to Hebron. Go to Jerusalem, and you'll be made king. So he said, I will let's go. So look at day. The Lord has told you, I'll hand you over to your enemies so you can do whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Just enough of it where he could say, by the way, do you recognize this cloth? Okay, so notice what happens, if you would. Afterward, and this is interesting, David's conscience bothered him because he'd cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, I can understand if he, you know, felt a bad conscience because he killed them. He didn't kill him here. He just cut a little piece of his garment. But he said, verse 6, he said to his men, swear before the Lord, I, would, I swear before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. That's one of the key verses in this passage. The Lord's anointed. Because we know when Samuel became king, he was, I mean, Samuel was made a prophet, he was anointed. Saul was anointed with oil. So being anointed was a big thing, an important thing. And so David said, I'm not going to lift my hand against him. That's against Saul since he is the Lord's anointed. 
With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against him. See the phrase where it says, David persuaded his men? The verb in Hebrew is very weird. It's something like to cut in half or divide. It often carries the idea of struggle, and that makes a lot of sense in this passage. In other words, he's not just persuading. He's got a problem with it going on. These guys are saying, David, you don't get it. This is the best chance you've ever had to become king. We've got all these guys. Here, we're, we're tired. We're running. We've been on the run. Look how hard our life has been from one stab with the thing, with all we need to do with the spear. We're, we're out. We're done. We win. The whole thing is ours. The game is over, and we won. And it looks like David had to really to have some kind of really strong discussion. I don't know, kicking people around. I don't know what he had to do, but he had to tell them, we're not going to do that. Could we do that? Yes. Is it understandable? Yes. Are we going to do it? No, we're not going to do it. And I'm sure some of them were furious. Best chance you've ever had. You're going to be king tomorrow. All you've got to do, kill him now. He's going to the bathroom. What a better opportunity to be able to get a guy and so know what happens. By the way, that phrase, when it talks about the Lord's anointed, was a quote that said, why is that so important? Uh, quote, um, says, why do men consider the anointed to be inviolate? Couldn't go anything against it. To be kept from attack and to be preserved from degradation. The answer lies in the fact that once anointed, the individual was set apart and consecrated to God. The point of it is, is saying that person, once they're consecrated, once the oil comes upon them, they do have a special thing, a special thing that God is giving them. Now, be very careful with this. This word, this phrase we talked about, a person who's anointed, we have to be very careful. I was going to say, I thought it was my heartbeat going, but um, this idea of the Lord's anointed is an important one, but tragically, it has been misused over history. Often so. I, Kathy and I are very aware of a situation we were involved in where a pastor was in a moral relationship with several different women at the same time. And when we was asked about it, he said, you can't do anything to me because I am the Lord's anointed. It was tragic. It was tragic for everything that was involved in this. But it was the idea that I have got that anointment because I'm the pastor and went to Dallas Seminary and I can do whatever I want. It's the exact opposite. A person who's anointed, who's been part of, set apart for that, ought to have be even more degree of holiness, of wanting to serve the Lord. And yet people sometimes, people, pastors sometimes use that term when they got to use it to say, that's like my big hammer for you. I am the anointed. You are not. And you'll do what I tell you to do. It's like, you hear that? Run. You don't want to be at that church, okay? But tragically, people have used that term. Okay, back to the passage. The back to the passage is Saul is the one who is still anointed. God has still using him. And so it said, then Saul left the cave. Okay, after going to the bathroom, and he went on his way. After that, David got up, he went out of the cave, and he called to Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down to the ground in homage. In other words, I'm just showing respect to you. And he said, David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of people who say, look, David intends to harm you. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. He's speaking to Saul, who's down below him. I could have killed you. In fact, he said, someone advised me to kill you. I think that's interesting. He doesn't say who it was. It's just someone. Someone said that I ought to kill you. There's a lot of people who wanted to kill him. 
Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you. And I said, I won't lift my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father. Notice how David is doing this. He's calling Saul his father. He is his son-in-law, by the way, of course. But he does a very a term of just really endearment, of respect. See my father. In other words, you treated me as like your son. One of the things were good with us. He said, look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. He said, look and recognize that there's no evil or rebellion in me. I haven't sinned against you. And you, excuse me, I haven't sinned against you, even though you're hunting me down to take my life. And then notice these very important words that David says. May the Lord judge between you and me. David and, and Saul. And may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never go against you. In other words, I've had every kind of opportunity. This is one of the best ones I've ever had, and I won't do it. Could I? Sure. Would everybody understand it? Yes. Would the Lord want me to do it? No. And so what happens? He says, as an old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. David says, my hand will never be, my hand will never be against you. And then David uses a kind of a colloquialism kind of describing how low he is compared to Saul. Who has the king of Israel come after, he asked Saul. What are you chasing after, dead dog, a flea? In other words, kind of like the lowest thing you can imagine. He said, that's what I am. I'm the dead dog and a flea. Why would you be chasing after someone like me? And then he comes back to that idea what the Lord should do. May the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and please my case and deliver me from you. When David finished saying these things, now notice this passage. It's very moving in one sense. He said, is that your voice, David, my son? You are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I have, not, I have done what is evil to you. It is very, very sad to think here Saul, as crazy as he is, as awful he can be, at least he had this moment of saying, you know what? He is better than I am. And I guess for a man like this, who's been a king for a long time, who wanted his son to be the one that would follow him, Jonathan, for him to realize that, you know what, this guy, the young man David, is going to take my place, and it's probably the way it needs to be. You are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I've done what is evil to you. We've seen all the way through, there's moments where Saul gets it where he realizes this is wrong, or this is what God is asking you to do. But then he turns right around. Because once again, we keep coming back to that passage. The Lord turned away from him. He turned away from God, and God said, okay, you want to do it your way. See where it takes you. And so he said, you have done what is good, excuse me, uh, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done, not done evil to you. Now notice verse 18, you yourself have told me today what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. And I'm sure Saul must have been shocked. Well, if I was in his place, the first thing I would have done was kill him. Get him out of my way. But he didn't do that. Verse 19, Saul says, you know, when a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? In other words, no. You want an opportunity to kill him, this is it. He's saying, David, I realize you could have killed me. And you chose not to. And I would have killed you. 
if I had the opportunity. And he realizes, at least for a moment, there's that sense of saying, I turned away from God. And here I am chasing this God that ultimately was going to be the one who's got to follow me as king. And I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. And so it's a tragic kind of thing for a tragic man. Saul says, now I know for certain, David, that you're going to be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. That must have been a bitter thing for him. After all those years, all the fighting, all the things that he did leading Israel, he's saying, you're not going to be the one that's going to go on. And for him, that must have been a tragic thing. And yet, a lot of this came because of the fact he refused to follow God. He had to do it his way. Therefore, Saul said, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name, my, my name from, my family's fa excuse me, from my father's family. Very common, we know in the ancient world, once the king took over, kill them all in the family there to make sure that none of them are going to go against you. So he's asking him, David, I do believe you're going to become king. You're going to take my spot, but please don't butcher my family. Keep them alive if you would. So notice what happens here. So David swore to Saul. Then Saul went back home, and David and his men went up into the stronghold. The stronghold's there in the mountains where he was hiding. This passage is interesting to us because it gives us a picture of one thing, when a person is following God and then turns away, and how things can go so bad. People can change so much when they turn themselves away from God. The danger is, so for many of us, is almost like a shortcut. We want to try to get things easy, get it done this way. When the guy, when David was in the cave there and Saul was going to the bathroom, people want to say, here's the opportunity. Just go kill him. And it's like, no, I could do that. I mean, I have no problem doing that in the sense I physically could do that, but I cannot, I will not do that because this is not what God has asked it to be. It shouldn't happen this way. And so we often have times where we think that well, we just do that shortcut. And of course, we see that, for example, in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4, that's the temptation, where Jesus is being tempted by the devil. And so it says, verse 4, 8, again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he, the devil, said to, him, to, Je to Jesus, I'll give you all these things if you'll fall down and worship me. Can you imagine what a great temptation that would be? Come on, Jesus, just worship me. No cross, no suffering, no struggle, no pain. It's all yours. All you've got to do is bend down, worship me a little bit, and guess what? I'm going to give it all to you. And Jesus is like, no, it is written, you shall not test the Lord. You know? And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. But a lot of times in life, what we try to do is we try to take a shortcut. We try to do it. said, so not exactly the way God wants to do but I think I've got a better way. And God says, really? The way of following him is the right way to path, and the path of following him. It's interesting in this passage. It speaks a lot about the providence of God. We talk about the providence of God. We're talking about the fact that God is one who's ultimately over all that is with us and all that is done. And this is important. Sometimes people, when they talk about God's providence, they look at it in a wrong way, in a sense of saying, somehow God has determined everything, everything's going to happen, there's nothing you can do about it. That's not what Christians, Christians talk about. I mean, it's saying still that God has cares for people. I know a, a missionary who went to Lagos, I guess it was Nigeria, and he was his first time there in Africa. And it was interesting, he got a cab 
which, you know, I would say I'd rather walk than have to go that. But anyways, he got in a cab, and it was nighttime. It was just dark, and the guy started driving as fast as he could through the streets with no lights on. And he kept asking the guy to stop, like, can't you stop? And he said, no, why? He said, inshallah, you know, God will. If God's will for me to die tonight, for you to die tonight, that's just the way it is. And he's like, you know, he's like, Lord, Father, help me get through this place this evening. It was like, I'm never going to take it. He's like, I'm done with cabs kind of deal. But the point was, there's sometimes people think of this as fatalism. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter because God's already ordained it. Well, there's a sense of that where it's true that God is ordained what's happening, but God still works through the choices that people make and the false and the bad choices that they make. Ultimately, God is going to bring all that he has for us and all that we have is to do. But it's talking about here in the providence of God. Saul, excuse me, David understands that, that he needs to trust with God. God has got a plan for that, and you can't just try to short-circuit it. But too often, that's exactly what we do. Remember what David made this comment. He said to Saul, may the Lord judge between you and me. May he, Lord, take vengeance on you and me, but my hand will never be against you. In other words, I recognize I could have killed you, but I'm not going to because I'm going to let God be the one who determines what's happened to you. And so he says that right, right to him. The passage, by the way, he goes back all the way back to what he said here in Deuteronomy chapter 32 where it says, vengeance, this is like the Lord speaking through the prophet David, not David, excuse me. Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. In time, his foot, their foot will slip, for their day of disaster is near, and their doom is coming quickly. In other words, leave it to the Lord to deal with this. You don't need to be the person that does this. Vengeance comes only from what God gives us, not from us. There's another thing in this passage that comes not only with the idea of recognizing sovereignty and making sure we understand what that means, but it goes back with this idea of David had this sense of reverence. Now think about that. David had a sense of reverence towards Saul, even though Saul's trying to kill him, and Saul's a crazy person at times. A lot of us would say, I have no respect for that guy. He's an idiot. He's killed 85 priests, killed them all, except for one that got away. You would say, no respect for that guy. David says, you know what? There's still the fact that we say, we, hey, we reverence God for who he is and what he does. We recognize that God's going to be the one that's going to settle all this. He doesn't need you to do that. And it's very interesting that that sense of reverence, for example, we talked a few moments ago about who are the person who's the anointed one and how sometimes that term is used wrong. There still should be among us a sense of reverence for who God is. Many people would say one of the saddest things that's happened in the lifetime of most of us here is a lack of reverence for the Lord. It's very tragic. I realize it's very easy to go to the other way, the extreme of, Dr. So-and-so, Pastor So-and-so, and you put them up on an altar and just get them higher and higher until Satan pulls it out and they all fall. Kind of, that's not what you want. But the point is, the other direction is like, hey, man, what's happening? I don't care. You know, it's like, unfortunately, reverence for God is something that we've seen dropping from generation after generation in recent years. And that's very sad. A lot of us today, we look upon God light. It's not the God who, who, who spoke to Israel where the mountains thundered. And it's a lot of times today as people say, yeah, it's God, yeah, okay. It's like the diminishment of God in our community, in our Christian community, that sense of reverence. Now I can understand. It's easy to have that sense of reverence when you're in a beautiful cathedral, okay? But how about in a place like this? Can there still be reverence towards God? 
with movable chairs? There better be. We shouldn't be so concerned about what we have in terms of our, what our building is like. It's more like, what does it mean to reverence God, to put him first, to acknowledge who he is, that he is our savior, our creator, our redeemer, and that he's called us to have a life of reverence towards him. Matthew Henry put it this way, we must rejoice in God, but still with a holy trembling. I like that phrase. We must rejoice in God, but still with a holy trembling. We're still dealing with Jehovah God, who can speak and create, create the world. I wonder how many of us have allowed ourselves to take the current of our culture, our Christian culture, of less and less reverence, because it's now more and more about me rather than about him. And yet God is calling to say, listen, do you recognize who you're dealing with? The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, King and Kings. He is the one we reverence. We recognize his providential work in our lives, but we also recognize that he is God and we're not. That we need him desperately. He doesn't need us, but he's willing to use us. And he calls us to live a life, a life of reverence of who God is of really recognizing who he's called us to be and what we are to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for this passage in 1 Samuel 24. Father, we thank you that David recognized that he needed to show respect even to a crazy guy who was out to kill him. That David was willing to wait for the Lord's time and not to try to take a shortcut. Father, we pray for us as well, that as David's reverenced even Saul in his craziness, that you would help us to grow in our reverence to who God is. That, Father, we would have that sense of awe, of respect, that when we come together as God's people, even here on every Sunday, that, Father, we'd recognize that we are in the presence of the Lord. We're not dealing with some minor person. We're dealing with the creator of the universe. Help us to grow in our reverence of you, we pray. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.